just when you think you know all there is to know about Donald Fagan, he can surprise you. Sure, there are the legendary stories. They've been traded like playing cards in chat rooms, fanzines, and merch lines. Along with his musical partner, the late Walter Becker, who passed away in 2017, Fagan influenced countless musicians, producers, songwriters, and music fans by setting the gold standard in record production with the band Steely Dan. And then there are his solo records, including The Nightfly, which was nominated for seven Grammys and which continues to serve as a reference for hi-fi aficionados around the world 30 years on. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. Yes, much is known about Donald Fagan and his work. It's true. But much is still left to be revealed. Stage fright, a general aversion to appearing on television, and nearly 20 years with no touring created a mystique that endures today, despite the fact that he's toured constantly since the 90s. Yes, Donald can surprise you. He does it not by telling you what happened, but rather what he thinks about it, or more to the point, how he thinks about it. He tells you that Steely Dan has more in common with punk than with the confessional California singer-songwriters that they were often compared to. He tells you why he thinks Stravinsky was a precursor to funk music. He tells you what's postmodern about his writing, why making his first solo record was so personally disruptive to him, what he does to fall asleep at night, when he decided to finally grow up, and who he never wants to see again. This conversation was recorded in the summer of 2019, just as Donald was getting ready to go out on his annual summer tour. This summer, Steely Dan is back out on the road again, playing to crowds of delighted fans around the country. The Third Story podcast is now a collaboration with listener-supported WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org studios to find out more about their award-winning podcasts. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Here's me and Donald Fagan, back in the summer of 20, hey, 19, talking it down. So, Donald, we're talking today as you prepare for one of what have become an annual series of tours. That's right. The first part of your career, you spent a long time not touring, actively not touring, and now you spend a lot of time on the road. Yeah, well, we toured from uh, 1972 through uh, 74 with our original band. Uh, Walter and I felt that uh, it was taking time away from recording, and we were making less than zero bucks. And there were various other reasons. There was a host of reasons why we decided to stop. And then we just uh, paid attention to recording for the most part. And then in uh, 93, uh, there was an opportunity to start again, and so we did. And what does it feel like to you now? What does performing mean to you now? Well, I don't have the kind of anxiety I used to uh, have about uh, performing, and I think I'm singing better than I used to. And we're able now to handpick uh, musicians who we we've uh, found to be uh, you know sympathetic to what we're doing. What does that mean? 
Well, I think with the original band, uh, they were great, very energetic, and we were all kids, really. But some of the guys weren't stylistically what we were looking for, and there were some, uh, you know, various vices that were involved uh, that were obstacles to giving a really great performance, we felt. And now, uh, you know, we've got guys who are basically uh, have a lot of experience, jazz musicians and session musicians. Uh, uh, actually, all the guys are really competent jazz people uh, who can improvise over changes and all that. And uh, so, uh, and we kind of all feel the groove the same way. Mm-hmm. It took a long time to get the right group of guys, but now we've been together quite a long time. Uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years or something. Yeah. yeah. You and Walter had an idea of what you were looking for. I, I always wondered if you talked about it and how you would talk about it, because a lot of the stories I've heard from session players and people who were involved in the records describe a feeling of almost like a two-headed entity that was thinking in this, along the same lines. Yeah, in a way, Walter and I had very similar tastes. You know, we uh, were both kiddie jazz fans, which was very unusual at the time, still is, I guess. And uh, we also liked R&B and uh, Motown and uh, and a few other uh, groups that were big when we were in high school, like the Birds and the Beatles and so on. And um, we agreed we need guys who could do a lot of those things well. You know, I remember when we started back in the late 60s and early 70s, um, generally speaking, you could, uh, you know, a musician would either be a jazz musician uh, who could improvise well and had all those skills, or uh, who couldn't necessarily um, uh, play rock and roll mm-hmm. or uh, electric blues uh, that well, especially drummers. There were exceptions, but but uh, most of them weren't great groove drummers, uh, backbeat drummers. Mm-hmm. And so you would either get one or the other, and then, you know, the skills they didn't have were lacking, you know, it, it just, just wasn't working. But by... Uh, the mid-70s, actually, there were musicians whose schooling was different and who could cover all these different genres and so on, uh, and it was just natural to them. Plus, you know, like a lot of the guys in our band, you know, listened to us, you know, when they were growing up. Huh. <clears throat> that's what they tell me, anyway. <laughs> so maybe and that's the, what you needed, was just to stick around long enough that you could actually influence a generation of players. Maybe could... so, maybe so. You know, you know, generally has had a really good time. You know, when you get older... Your body hurts and your foot falls off and you have to pick it up. And and, uh, so you become crankier when you get older. You know, you're eating rotten food. and (laughs) Yeah. It's like, you know, it's hard traveling and all. But um, musically, it's it's been great with with the band. And, uh, you know, we get sold-out performances. We were just, like, in Las Vegas, which was a horrible, horrible place to stay for three weeks. You stayed three straight weeks? Yeah, it was what they, they, uh, in a very flattering way, they called it a residency, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as if you were, like, a professor or something like that. (laughs) But um, the shows were great. It was a lot lot of fun, just like any other show, but... um, the uh stay in a hotel for three weeks or in a yeah it's like especially like you know when i when i like wander around outside i'll get nailed by fans and stuff because i'm staying in the same hotel where i'm playing so huh you know it's like because uh, it's free because it would be really expensive to stay in some other hotel so uh you know 
I don't go out that much. So you have to entertain yourself you know, reading and watching movies. Or I, I find it very hard to write on the road, so usually I don't. You talk about being like recognized on the street. I mean, do you, do you get recognized on the street? Much more in the last couple of years. I don't know why exactly. Uh, I used to be completely uh, fan-free on the street uh, for most of my career, but uh, if you can call it a career. <laughs> but uh, in the last four or five years, like uh, almost every day someone comes up to me. It surprised me because we never did television hardly ever. And I don't know. Maybe because we played the Beacon every year or something like that. You know, I don't know. Well, and also being touring, right? I mean, when you weren't touring, you were kind of uh, mysterious, right? Your face wasn't Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, people say, oh, I saw you in yeah. Madison. I saw yeah. you in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. So, you know, it's uh, we've been out so long, I guess, that that we have a lot of fans of different ages. You know? And how do you feel about being somebody who's recognizable like that? Does it feel invasive? Um, it depends, you know, how I feel. If I'm in a, if in a bad mood, it's annoying, you know, and, and if I'm in a better mood, it's kind of, oh, yeah, sure, that's... <laughs> I'm great, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that you have not only fans, but fanatics. I mean, there, there are still there are some, fanatics. There are some fanatics, yeah. Which I think must be a very strange thing to make work that inspires a kind of a cult following and also a fanaticism. Yeah, well, I think people, you know, uh, appreciate it on different levels. Yeah. You know, some people just like the melodies and the, the vibe of it, you know, yeah. and then other people like are more, they analyze it more thoroughly. Some of them are very wrong. But uh, that's not my problem. Huh. You know? <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing, right? You put it out there in the world, and it's not your responsibility. Nah. You shoot an arrow in the air. Where it falls, I know not where. How long do you think you're going to keep doing it? Well, you know, I like to play. I feel weird if I'm not doing musical stuff. Uh, I play the piano a lot at home, and uh, <clears throat> sometimes I play in, uh, if we're not, Touring with the band, like I went out with the smaller group, the Night Flyers, uh, for a couple months. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. And they were younger guys, so it was interesting to see the way they see it. In what sense? Well, they just, it's, you know, they have to play their parts, but but they have a, it just feels different. It's like, it, it's it's just as good in a certain way. Yeah. But for one thing, it was a smaller group, so there's more space. Mm -hmm. And um, the drummer, who was really good, uh, this guy, Lee, had a more jazzy kind yeah. of approach, and I, I liked that. It was fun to play with him. These were like that. Woodstock guys, right? Yeah, they're from upstate yeah. around Woodstock. Uh, yeah, actually, Lee's father owns a jazz club uh, in, uh, I think it's Marlboro, New York. Mm -hmm. So he's he has a lot of experience. And then sometimes they'll play uh, just up up in Woodstock where I have a house. There's uh, well, I used to play uh, when Lee Von Helm was alive. He used to have these. Saturday Night Rambles. Mm -hmm. So I used to sit in with those sometimes, and that was terrific fun. Yeah. And his daughter, Amy Helm, who is my stepdaughter, uh, also uh, I'll play with her and various people that she knows. But in terms of going out every year, I mean, like I said, it seems like now you're in a cycle where every summer or fall, you know, you're going to play the Beacon, you're going to go out and do a few weeks. Yeah, I, yeah it's, it's really, uh, I look forward to it. You, you know, do. It's really fun. It's like a, you know... Kind of a onerous vacation mm -hmm. or something. <laughs> and what do you listen to? If you're going to put on the box at home, what do you put on? Charlie Parker relaxes me. I can put that on uh, softly to go to sleep. I, I don't know. It's you, funny. Still, you use music to fall asleep, huh? Yeah. And my, you know, most people uh, still to this day, Charlie Parker is so radical that he can still clear a room at a party. 
someone puts it on. But mm-hmm. to me, it's like just so sweet, you know. Mm-hmm. Like bebop is so sweet. Like the whole, you know, on one hand, it was like really the first instance of black musicians not catering to the audience, uh, you know. Dizzy Gillespie was sort of more of a liaison to the audience, but Charlie Parker just played. That's all he did. And uh, Does you see the video of him? He's just, the film, he's just standing there. Yeah, he stands there in, in, mm-hmm. in proper position and mm-hmm. and plays. But uh, so there was definitely a an anger there, and you can hear that too. But on on the other hand, there was this kind of, brotherly warmth about it that uh, it was very very sweet the melodies are are very uh, warm you know and uh, and I don't get bored because he's like he played so fast and uh, there were so many notes and yet I think because they were based on standards or blues for the most part uh, he just put new melodies on top of it 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 retained the warmth of of Harold Arlen and Gershwin and whoever you know uh, even though he was, had these jagged lines that he was playing over. So to me, it's like the perfect music. It's a shame that, uh, you know, that more people aren't aware of it even to this day, you know. I mean, I think there was like, there was a few years, maybe five years or six years in the f- late 40s and 50s when, like, you hear, you'll hear these uh, old uh, recordings of the Dizzy Gillespie big band and, like, they... They finish the tune, and it sounds like a huge audience. It's, <laughs> it's like just astounding to me that that, that could be so, you know, because uh, well, maybe in Europe or Japan that could happen, but certainly not here. It's still to this day, you know, most people, you, you just mention the word jazz, and, you know, it's, it's almost become a joke in the culture. It is a joke in the culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's hard to understand that because I live so inside the jazz bubble, and so many yeah, of my I friends know. are jazz but musicians. But I, I see it on TV yes. or... Like there's this comedian who uh, who was on this show Portlandia. Fred Armisen. Yeah, this guy Fred Armisen. Yeah. He did this routine I where saw the, it. where like the whole beginning of it is, is like putting down jazz and saying how how bad it is yeah. and irritating, and like I'll never watch him again. Mm. I never want to see that guy again because because you know why? Because he's an idiot. <laughs> I, I saw that same routine and it, I'm a fan of his and and I thought boy this is really a misguided totally. point of view. Speak about tone deaf in both literal and in any other sense. Yes. It's like, uh, no, I, I, I now despise the guy because <laughs> that's just how I am. Yeah. You know, it's like it's hard for me to see the other part of him now that I heard that. And it's this other guy who makes movies. Uh, he made that movie of uh, the horrible drum teacher. Uh, yes, I totally fuck agree. Fuck that motherfucker. Boy, I, you know, because he, he did two of them. The <laughs> yeah, then La La, he, Land, La La Land. Looks like thought, white people invented jazz this cat or whatever. Has t- and I, I said about Whiplash, you know, I thought if, the, if it was the same movie about basketball or something, you know, I would have an easier understanding, time understanding it or anything. I mean, it's really just a bad psychological thriller with the teacher, but he chose to use jazz as the vehicle. Well, the funny thing is he doesn't even know what jazz is because what he was actually, what they were actually teaching was a kind of stage band yeah. student jazz, yeah. you know, well, that's which that is also very yeah. misguided in a lot of ways. And so he doesn't even know what it is, and yet he's making movies about it. It's disgusting. He, he's just like... He must be really dumb. You know? <laughs> Man, you're guy. saying you're saying what I think deep inside my body I feel, but I'm, <laughs> I'm too I'm too of, of wary of uh, of conflict to actually yeah. say these things, man. I've even, I've written about it even. Yeah, like I just think the guy, 
I remember I wrote something about it in Rolling Stone where yeah. I, I thought that movie Whiplash, yeah. it's not that it shouldn't be shown in theaters, yeah. <laughs> but it be sh should be shown at midnight in a midnight movie with with uh, other campy bad movies. Yes, right. <laughs> it, is, it is misguided. But so, but you're right. Jazz is a joke. I mean, it has a become joke, a yeah. joke. But it's low-hanging fruit. I mean, that's what I think about with Fred Armisen is I don't hold it against him because he doesn't know what he's talking about. And it's just a... I do. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I hold it against him that he doesn't know what he's talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And, you know, it's just that it's, this is something I love, you know, uh... It's true that most of the stuff I love happened before 1966 or something. Uh, so that what people think of as jazz, you know, is really not. So, you know, and he's a younger guy and, you know, I'm sure he just doesn't have the experience. Uh, yeah. Or, uh, but um, I don't care. Fuck him. But it's funny because, you know, some people really think of, y of you as a rock musician. Uh, I think I sort of, yeah. I mean, I think actually it's more as an R&B yeah. player. But uh, I remember uh, Bob Durrell, I did something with him once, and he, he said, you know, I've been trying to figure out what kind of <laughs> piano player you are, and you know what? You're a blues player. <laughs> I said, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> By the way, great Bob Durrell impression, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was great, great guy, great writer. Yeah, in that period of, like, I don't like a lot of singers, actually, but Mose Allison, uh, I think your dad produced it, too. It was a great record, but... Uh, a few of them, yeah, he did. Uh, Blossom Deary. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of stuff that I... The kind of singing is a very understated kind of thing. I, I love what Dizzy Gillespie sang. I think uh, there's a version of uh, the song called Something in Your Smile mm -hmm. by Anthony Newley. Mm -hmm. and he just kills it. It's just just great. Why do you say you don't like a lot of singers? What does that mean? I don't like jazz singing I'm talking yeah. about. It's it's really just a personal thing. I don't much like scat singing. Something about the way that the melodies are distorted. I mean, I'd rather hear Ray Charles Ray Charles sing something straight with little changes or you know, the soulful stuff in it, but I'm not like a big Sarah Vaughan fan or although she was, you know, fabulous mm -hmm. you know, singer, but uh, and generally, I'm not the hugest Ella Fitzgerald fan either. Even, but uh, and there's, there are some people that I like. I kind of like more, you know, when someone plays the melody and just plays with it a little bit. Like, uh, like I once saw Sonny Rollins at the Bottom Line, and he played "I'll Be Seeing You" for about an hour, uh. sticking to the melody almost every. Every chorus, and yet... He believes in that. It was just so, like, uh, you know, it was like going on this, like, trip, you know. It was just unbelievable what he did with it. Um, he was, he's, he's, he's the best. I'm in touch with him once in a while. Oh, really? Well, he lives up in Woodstock yeah. now. And uh, I met him at a tribute to him at the Apollo Theater. There was, uh, it was after he stopped playing. Uh, and... Um, you know, I got his phone number, and so when I'm up there, I, I'll call him, ask him if he needs anything, mm -hmm. or you know, if he wants someone to bring him. So far, he's he's declined, but uh, we have talks on the phone occasionally. Yeah, and he's just fantastic. You know, funny. He's like a the old philosopher. You know. I mean, if you can crawl into the skin of a young younger Donald Fagan to imagine that you would be, you know, have a friendship with Sonny. No, I, it was un it's unbelievable to me that I've even never spoken to him. You know, I feel that way meeting almost, I met, like, I've met Horace Silver. I've met, uh, 
Well, the Bricker Brothers, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, Woody Herman, and uh, who actually made a record doing arrangements of some of our stuff. And uh, these guys that I used to listen to, you know, in school. So it's always amazing to me. Although, you know, I never had this cult of the personality like like people, like, you know, admirers of Elvis or... Uh, or actors, Marlon Brando. I, I like their work, like, and maybe I was even fanatical about some of their work and stuff. But I never had a thing where I went, completely wanted to meet them so much. Hmm. And I'm I'm really happy when I uh, meet someone like Sonny who totally lives up to to everything I know about him. But um, I was I was never into the sort of buy their T-shirts type of thing. Or, well, there's that danger that they might disappoint you too. You know, that's true. That's maybe part of it. I, I, it's true. I'm mainly interested in the work, listening to it, and there's also a lot of like jazz people, even jazz musicians, where you know I'll put on uh, something you know that I think is great, you know, and any of Miles or, and uh, they'll start talking between each other, talking about stories about Miles and the usual Miles stories or this or that, and I'm trying to listen to the record. You know, it's like. To me, it's so magnetic, you know, the music itself, that I just tend not to say, you know, say much, or you know, maybe I'll say, "Hey, wow, listen to that," or something. But they just start chattering over it as if, you know, it makes me suspicious of them. Like, how much are they really into this, or are they just uh, musicians for hire who play anything that you might, might hmm. want? Or, you know, but you know, that may also be narcissistic of me to think other people would have the same sort of concentration, you know, that I have. Well, but I hear what you're saying. The work speaks for itself. And, I mean, maybe to an extent you feel that way about your own work, too. I don't listen to my own work. It's like, but that's mainly because I'm, I'm so, uh, I don't like to hear my voice. I always, I always hear the flaws in it. What did you want to sound like? Or who, who you know? Who... Billy Eckstein. <laughs> I want, not, well, that's, it's, that's a dated yeah. style and all that. But yeah. I wanted to have the kind of, like, I like, it's funny, but there's certain singers I admire who are, not even jazz singers like Julie Andrews. Uh-huh. I love the technique, the and how like or even the the singers that uh, backup singers mm-hmm. we have in our band are are just fabulous singers, you know. And I could never do what they do. It's just the accuracy and the range and and all that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, I know I I got a nice style and all that, but but I always uh, I loved I love you know people with great technique. You know you have a style, you know you have an original style, but you don't want to hear yourself sing. You still don't really want to hear the sound of your No, voice. and there's something just also, the ex- I feel exposed or... Like, when I finished mixing the Nightfly record, I had kind of a nervous breakdown. Because when I was writing with Walter, it was a kind of a distance I could keep, and I was playing roles in a way, and... Uh, but the Nightfly was, like, personal. It was like, you know stuff that I was actually emotionally involved with as a kid and all that. And uh, although I, it was a complete surprise to me, when I was finished with that, I didn't want it to come out. It was like I, huh, I sort of like, what did I, I've made a terrible mistake, you know. I think it came out good, but, but I don't want anyone to actually hear it, you know. And I had like a nervous breakdown, really. I started going to a shrink. But now I'm better. You, after the Nightfly... There was a period of a number of years where you were pretty... Yeah, well, that had to do with that. Like, I just fell apart, and it took me, like, 10 years to get myself together, sort of. I was like... Uh, it was also one of these things where, 
you know, being brought up in a uh, conservative, conformist 50s, I, uh, like my father, I was kind of emotionally uh, stunted, <laughs> like most of the 50s fathers, mm -hmm. you know, in those days. And, uh, you know, it's, there was something, uh, there was, it just like, when, when I felt like I was exposing myself, I just lost it. And also, you know, I think I, I had been, I had been running on this kind of youthful energy that didn't really, uh, it, it, I didn't have the usual development into an adult because I, I was also spoiled by the rock and roll business and that I'd go out on tour, you were taken care of, uh, not very well, but, you know, it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I knew what a mortgage was. Mm -hmm. or a, you know, I still don't know very well what a mortgage is, but, um, you know, uh, I had to kind of grow up late. Or what a marriage was. Or what a marriage was, yeah, for sure. And um, I kind of, uh, you know, it wasn't until I was like almost middle-aged that I got it, you know, because, uh, you know, when you go to a shrink, you have to go through all this, like, emotional stuff and get it out, get all that stuff out, you know, that you've been ignoring all your life. But you're saying that the, actually the process of making the Nightfly was sort of the trigger, the mm -hmm. thing that... Totally. Putting yourself out there in a yeah. more personal way. Yeah. And if that's what you were doing for 10 years was more or less was, or eight yeah, years. Yeah, and, and I would try to write every day, and yeah. I just hated what I was writing. Like, i just throw it out. or Wow. It was like, uh, it was very frustrating. Um, and I, was, I got really depressed and all that. Started taking antidepressants, and mostly they didn't work. And <laughs> Yeah, it was a drag. The 80s, although, you know, I'm you know, way in retrospect, I'm glad I set out the 80s because... Yeah, because uh, nothing ever actually happened, and Ronald Reagan was president, and, <laughs> yeah, so you just and I hated that reverb they used to use. <laughs> well, it's true, <laughs> it's true, man. Because when you came, but you skipped it, and you came back, yeah. and it was you got to make another dry sounding record. Yeah, I hated the, came back. I hated it's still the dry. Reverb used to drive me nuts. Yeah. When you came back, and the next record, you know, the follow up record and the follow up songs that you were writing. They were like, rather than looking to the past, they were looking to kind of a version of the future that was being told from the, like, the 50s. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. So you came back looking to the future. I mean, there's something very optimistic after mm -hmm. having come through all that Well, therapy. especially Comicuriad, I think. Nightflight was kind of looking at the present from the past, yeah. and then Comicuriad was sort of looking at the future from the present yeah. in, a, in a certain way. And then the rest of the albums were just all about death. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> but when you sing, you know, you do. I've, every time I've seen you sing, you you go for it. I don't hear you. Oh hide. yeah, I I've always been able to do that kind of. Uh, I'm scared, to, you know, when I first get on the stage. But after a few minutes, I just get so into the music and mm -hmm. the groove and all that that I don't even know what I'm doing. It's just kind of natural, you know. And you still feel that like kind of nervous adrenaline before you go on stage? Yeah, not as much, but. Uh, I think most people do. do who are, no matter how much experience you have, there's this is kind of, I'm going to fuck it up. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's not that surprising to hear you say that there was something freaky about putting out a personal statement because you are a bit of a mystery to pe people. I mean, I guess people don't necessarily know who you are. Yeah, it's because we didn't like doing playing TV because... Uh, to an extent, and we, we didn't like being on camera, so there's not much documentary footage. Why, why not? Because... Uh, I think both of us had, uh, to a degree, uh, a kind of uh, shyness or uh, kind of a 
physical diffidence or mm -hmm. thought we were like wouldn't look good. We weren't the kind of, you know, I don't think we both we didn't necessarily have a problem with the way we looked. We were just, but but we we felt it wouldn't look good on TV because of the historically the kind of people you see on TV. You know, they have big heads, <laughs> big like swaths of cheek, and you know, white, you know, even teeth, and and we're just not that. You know, like I remember seeing. Uh, his name he used to go on a david letterman the guy who used to draw american splendor harvey Picard. oh yeah right and he would come on tv and it was like i would see him and i'd like you know i love this guy but he shouldn't be on tv <laughs> you know? but there's something interesting but you know also your records sounded so crafted you yeah know? and it's almost like you're saying we couldn't give you a visual version that yeah was as crafted. in a way uh, yeah you know i think it was really it was to a degree neurotic there is one thing about tv that's that's uh, the worst um which is uh, you know on david letterman a few times and all that and it's the idea that you have to start exactly on a dime and when they want to and you have to end when they want to and they're really nasty about that you know, the producers, because it's all about, like, you know, transitions, and you know, commercial now, you know. Yeah. And I, I hate being, I feel like I'm, I'm uh, there's something fascist about it as it relates to music. And I hate that, you know. I, I don't like working to somebody else's schedule. Or... Mm -hmm. As you've been on the road more, you've been in the studio a little less. Do you feel as connected to the studio as you did 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Um, not at this point. For a variety of reasons, uh, I enjoy playing live more hmm. than being in the studio at this point, which is kind of the opposite of the way I used to feel. Yeah. And also, it's possible that uh, there's a new uh, paradigm, for better or worse, uh, that um, I do find it difficult. Uh, I, I found it difficult to write. Hmm. I have uh, a few things that I've been working on, but... Um, for one thing, I, I sometimes when I'm writing, I feel as if I'm repeating myself. I, you know, I'll get like, uh, I'll work for a day on something, say, hey, I wrote this already, pretty much. And that's uncomfortable for me. Or hmm. in the sort of uh, climate we live today, both literally and, uh, and also politically and uh, socially, I feel I don't know enough about the culture. I mean, I, you know, I've written a lot of songs from the viewpoint of an older person looking at the younger culture. But I've done that already. And um, I am kind of disconnected from the sort of, uh, you know, millennial tech generation and the way they think. You know, because Walter and I used to sort of pride ourselves on being pretty good psychologists and, you know, um, kind of like playwrights or something, you know, being very aware of the way people relate to each other. And that sort of went into the tunes. Now it's it's much more mysterious to me, um, and uh, as far as I can see, much shallower, with exceptions. So it's 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 harder for me to relate. You know, I don't feel like uh, I have that much wisdom uh, to impart <laughs> at this point. It's interesting to hear you say that you've written songs from the point of view of an older person looking at the young culture because i think a lot of those songs you wrote when you were a member of the younger culture yeah well of course we we were when we started but uh as time went on you know i think probably around the time we wrote hey 19 
you know, we, we were kind of shifting into being adults or yes. whatever, you know. Well, right. I mean, there's always been a, an element of nostalgia also in, in your writing. Um, there is. I, I don't swear much by nostalgia, but I think everyone, when they get older, they, you know, remember perhaps, you know, with a lot of idealism uh, <laughs> uh, about uh, days when they were a younger version of, of themselves. You, know? mm-hmm. you talk about how the political climate is part of what has you feeling a little isolated or outside of the zeitgeist of the mainstream. Do you feel political now? Well, I, you know, I always uh, was aware of what's, you know, going on. Um, like a lot of kids in my generation, or at least my particular subculture, you know, I was uh, very aware of uh, the Vietnam War and the, uh, you know, I hated Nixon along with everybody else and all that. But um, I guess I didn't see it so much as material for songs, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I still don't really yeah. to a degree. But uh, the problem now is that you know the satirical element in our work has been far outstripped by reality. You know, you can't really make fun of what's going on now that successfully. You know, satires. I mean, I've spoken to other people, writers and so on, who basically write satire or parody and. For instance, the uh, you know the skits they have on Saturday Night Live. Uh, once in a while, they hit it, but generally speaking, you know, just what happens every day in the news is just so much more outrageous that uh, you know it seems kind of impotent. Mm-hmm. You describe the process of trying to write today for yourself. I assume anything that you wrote today would be for Donald Fagan. It would be a solo thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, aside from a few moments uh, I mainly collaborated with Walter how, uh, and I didn't even do that for some years before he died how did you in the period when you were both managing Steely Dan and your solo career how did you distinguish between the two sets of writing the two the process <clears throat> well I, I've been asked that before and generally speaking I my answer is I think the same it's it's uh, when I was writing with Walter there was a kind of more objective or journalistic uh, approach where uh, I was off, often sort of the songs I'd be kind of playing a character mm-hmm. in a way who was an observer or and or participant and 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 uh, with um, solo albums uh, there was some of that too but uh, it was more personal more subjective uh, you know sometimes I just wrote as myself so that's the main difference I think what about the the difference between writing collaboratively and writing alone was there some comfort in having a sounding board or or was there something that oh, you yeah, generated absolutely. in that way yeah in fact i you know sometimes even now when i when i write something i you know turn around and say hey what do you think of this <laughs> and there's no answer <laughs> you, know? you try to imagine what the response might be yeah uh-huh and you know sometimes i can do that but uh you know walter was very uh he's very articulate in the way that he would uh, put things, you know, so that um, I, I have to I have to do that compl- all by myself now. So mm-hmm. I saw you play last summer when I was home visiting my folks in Madison. Oh, I saw okay. Steely Dan Doobie Brothers gig. Oh, on a okay. Hot June night. I wondered what it's like for you to be Steely Dan right now, and what the experience has been like for you since Walter passed. It's not, you know what? What is, is Walter was uh, was ill for some years before he died, and his his role because of that his role was somewhat diminished. Um, so I was kind of running it by myself, and he he'd show up for the occasional rehearsal, and uh, but but 
um, he was dealing with his uh, physical problems a lot. So uh, it, it's not that much of a transition, really, at this point. You, know. mm-hmm. you write about in Eminent Hipsters, also in your tour diary, something that I've wondered about as a, as a fan of both of your records, solo records and of the Steely Dan records, why, for some reason... If it's Steely Dan, you fill a big room, and if it's Donald Fagan, it's a different set of economics when musically yeah. I find them to be very related. Yeah, it's just a fact of uh, <laughs> familiarity, and you know, people, uh, it, it just Steely Dan has more recognition. And, uh, but you know, if they come to see me, they're basically getting at something pretty similar. Although you know, even now I, I've I've started doing with Steely Dan. I've started doing some more uh, stuff for my solo albums and so on. Is that something you would have done when Walter was still? You know, Walter had a thing about uh, he 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 liked to keep it within the sort of Steely Dan universe. You know, uh, he was very reluctant to do his own stuff, and he um, he wasn't that happy when I did my own stuff too. We, I think, when we first started playing again in the nineties. He was more into that, but as time went on, he uh, wanted to do mainly Steely Dan material. And it, it didn't bother me that much, but uh, I am glad now to be able to do uh, a, more, a bigger variety of uh, stuff. You know, when, when someone's ill, they tend to want more routine. I, hmm. You know, it's like because uh, I guess it's just less for them to deal with if you've got... So he, he likes to do a pretty similar set list every night you know we switch out some tunes but uh you know i didn't want to uh upset him or make it difficult for him so i just uh, went along with it but you know since he died i've tried to mix it up a little more mm-hmm. yeah i can imagine that it gets a little routine playing the same tunes well i i like playing them it's like uh i could still do that and we still do that some nights yeah. play a pr- sort of a hits set list they're really fun to play you know it's like because of the way it's set up. I, I myself have more. I'm sort of more of a free agent. Uh, everyone else has to play their part more or less, and it kind of leaves leaves me to to mess around in, in almost every song. So I sometimes feel like uh, Count Basie or something, like just interjecting a chord here and there, trying to kick it or whatever, you know. Yeah, I mean that speaks, I think, to the balance in the music that I feel like you've been striking for a long time and and that influence like you described the reason you like this band and these musicians that you found is because they go both ways they understand jazz they know what that is even if it's a very part heavy gig and a very arranged gig well there's a lot of soloing they do too which are improvised but i'm just talking about the basic arrangement is made up of parts each of which which they have to play uh, more or less you know to to make it groove uh, like with any rhythm section, you know, I get to, you know, mess around. But I want to talk about that that tension in the music because, you know, I know that you're a huge jazz fan. I, yeah. You know, I, I know that that's really feeding the music. Sure. And it's also highly specific. I mean, the stories of the making the records is really like a this, the quest for a very particular specific thing in, in almost every case. Uh, well, yeah, as we started, you know, getting better at making records, we also uh, started getting these ideas which are more specific. Originally, it was just the five or six guys in the band. Uh, and, you know, we let them do what they do, yeah. pretty much. But after a while, we started... Uh, we wanted to play around in a kind of almost postmodern uh, sense with taking classic stuff 
and uh, twisting it, you know. And, and if you're going to do that, you need to specify exactly what you want because it's not just using old grooves or anything like that. It's, it's you know, starting with an old groove and then seeing how you can alter it and seeing how... And, and when played against the lyrics... Mm-hmm. And then you get a very rich thing going, you know. How much of it was looking for something and not being sure what it was? There was some of that, too, you know. Yeah, we never knew exactly what we were going to get. And sometimes, you know, you'd ask a musician to do something that it was just so alien to him that we just, we'd just say, yeah, let's go on to something else. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's that classic albums video of you and Walter putting up the multi-tracks to peg. Oh, yeah, right. And the listen, Asia, in the Asia uh, thing. documentary or whatever. And you're listening to all the solos, the guitar solos. It maybe gave me the best sense of what it was like to be in the studio with the two of you because he, there you are again 20-something years later, 30 years later, listening to all those solos and reacting again as if for the yeah, first time. Yeah, it had time. the same effect. It's like, uh, you know, I guess Walter and I, just, we just had a very similar taste so that we knew when something was quality yes. performance, you know, and uh, all the solos had moments that were good, and you know, they were all great musicians. But uh, we actually, I remember in that particular clip where we're listening to Peg or whatever, it's basically a blues, but we were surprised that uh, we went through four or five players who just couldn't negotiate it for some reason. It may, I think it was mainly, I mean, it was a major, major key blues for one thing, although you could play blues blue scale over most of it but it had i think the you know it's basically a one four five blues but the five chord uh was parallel to the other chords in that it was also had a major seventh in it which meant that it was a lydian it went into a lydian mode which some guys just couldn't wrap their head around it for some, some reason yeah. yeah it was befuddling yeah right, we were surprised though and you know it is i think also i think jay graden who ended up doing the actual solo he had more of a beboppy sen- uh, sensibility mm-hmm. and that uh, that really helped how many great solos ended up on the cutting room floor of those records? How many great performances? Not, not, not you know, Peg, that was a specific instance where he went through yeah. quite a few guys, but yeah. I can't remember another one where where we didn't get past two guys. Yeah. Uh, there were some really heartbreakers, like, I remember we had Charlie Mariano come in, a uh, great, fantastic alto player, and uh, it was in when he was, you know, older. He was He was an older guy by that time. It was in a key that wasn't that happily applied, you know, to jazz. Um, (laughs) And uh, it was okay, you know, but you could see he was like a little... He had been playing like modal music for some time by then. He was a little rusty as far as changes Mm -hmm. go. So then uh, we just couldn't use it. And so we ended up having uh, Randy Brecker Mm -hmm. come in and play it on the trumpet or flugelhorn or whatever. I've talked to, for these interviews, I talked to Rob Mounsey, I talked to Steve Kahn, I talked to some folks who were on some of the records, and and they both told me a version of a story of recording the rhythm track for Gaucho, Mm -hmm. doing, you know, I don't know how many takes of the thing, and being somewhat exasperated, and finally realizing that there was the last take of the night or something, it was salvaged, but the way they described it was almost a bewilderment of what what you guys were looking for, you know, they, they couldn't even necessarily hear the difference between the takes, but... They were getting this feedback that, nope, we're not quite there. We're, there's still a thing. That was an interesting one because what actually happened was uh, we went, we did like, uh, I don't know, eight, ten takes. And it was a difficult song. It had, you know, uh, a lot of 
uh, accents and the chorus was kind of a different style from the rest of it. And then Walter and I said, let's, you know, it was getting late. Yes. And Walter and I left. And what happened was our producer, Gary Cass, decided he wanted to try himself to do more takes. And so I have no idea what happened after that. Although <laughs> I've heard they did a lot of takes. And they ended up doing the last take and then used some few pieces from some other takes. or what. And it, it came out good. Yes. I have to say that I was uh, very uh, ambivalent to actually record that because I felt that it drew too heavily from a Keith Jarrett composition huh. that I had heard. And I hadn't heard the Keith Jarrett thing for a long time, but I knew it was kind of in my head when I was writing it. And so I was always thinking, you know, maybe, maybe you know, it was almost like a parody of Keith Jarrett in a certain way. But I, I sort of, uh, I said, oh, it's probably just as well we don't get a take because, you know, I don't like to be a, a, a repeater pencil, as uh, Lester Young used to say. Mm-hmm. But when we got a good take, you know, everyone said, ah, it's great, let's just finish it. And uh, so we did. And then Keith Jarrett sued us when it came out. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, so you were, you, your intuition was right on that. <laughs> I think, yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, I, was, I think I was the one who was more careful about it, but I just didn't follow through, you know. <laughs> That's funny. I was not expecting that to be the fu- the, uh, the, the tag the on the story. story. Yeah. One of the things that struck me when I read your book and thinking about Kamakuria and some of the other writing of yours is the role of science fiction in your development. Right. You know, when I was a young man, I guess, in high school, my dad gave me this Alfred Bester book. That I think it was called Tiger, Tiger, the version that I read. Wow. You're two- one of the few people who's familiar with that. And I remember... Mm being given this book like it was this holy hip you know thing that he was giving me and i called him after i read your book and i said man you know donald is totally into that book too man <laughs> yeah totally yeah science fiction was influential significant to you yeah i used to read a lot of i guess what they now call golden age of science fiction and he was probably my favorite and and walters too cuz i don't know we just grew up in the same kind of subculture and we we just we both were sci-fi fans, and yeah. and we both uh, were familiar with Alfred Bester. And I always felt that there was something about He had a kind of very cosmopolitan attitude. Uh, he was funny, and uh, he had a kind of postmodern sensibility almost about the whole thing. I always felt there was something about his attitude and his the kind of distance he had from what was going on that we somehow incorporated into the whole Steely Dan thing. I know you've talked about this before, but I've always been curious about how the literary side of your life influenced and influences your writing, how you would think about writing lyrics as if they were stories. Yeah, well, both Walter and I were, you know, used to read a lot when we were kids. And, you know, we read the stuff that was popular with East Coast middle-class kids at the time. So, you know, it was The Catcher in the Rye. And uh, we, we both liked... Humor, like comic novels. Mm-hmm. So we both enjoyed uh, Kurt Vonnegut and um, Thomas Berger, uh, Vladimir Nabokov. Although he was he was on a kind of a higher level in a certain way because his books were were richer in a sense um, or or more complex. There was a few others. Well, Philip Roth mm-hmm. to a certain ex- hmm. extent. Uh, Bruce J. Friedman, I think, mm-hmm. had a big influence on both this the way his uh, comedy technique which had a kind of a, well, it was really Jewish, mm-hmm. but it was uh, a kind of outrageous kind of uh, shock humor. 
and he was he was very brave to you know psychologically he he was brave about depicting certain kind of characters how much of your point of view lyrically do you think is jewish is really jewish there's certainly an element of it you know walter uh, wasn't jewish but he uh, grew up in forest hills <laughs> so he he always used to think of himself as kind of an honorary jew and so his humor was influenced by the you know the environment he grew up in the high school kids he kids he went to he went to Stuyvesant but in terms of your you know I know you described this sort of alienation that suburban alienation that you felt when you moved but there was something also that felt very kind of connected to the Jewish middle class experience of that generation moving out to the suburbs and being yeah yeah and it was very uh, it was very negative experience for me because you know my parents uh, in order to uh, you know make a better life for the family and uh, become upwardly mobile and so on, moved out of uh, the sort of inner city of Passaic, New Jersey when I was, well, we first were, I was born in Passaic, then we moved to Fairlawn for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But then we moved to this um, brand new development, uh, Levittown-type place in New Jersey uh, that was built on farmland, and all the houses looked the same, and we were moving away for, from our sort of uh, broader family, you know, away from my grandmothers and my aunts and so on. And I, and it's true, my father got a much better job in this uh, place, but uh, it never seemed worth it to me. You know, it seemed like, uh, I think that's when I really kind of, I was about 10 or 11, I think that's when I really separated from my parents because it seemed to me like they were making a really terrible decision. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt that I, I knew better than them uh, what was important in a way, <laughs> it seems which like- was family and... Huh. That's interesting, because on the one hand, you knew what, what was important, and what was important was family and being connected. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, it seems like almost a precursor for what would happen later on in the late 60s when your entire you know generation started to believe that they knew better than the generation that was older. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think it was you know justified, you know, to, yeah. uh, although it ended up in a kind of disaster. <laughs> yes. Well, here we are. <laughs> but, you know, there's something so vivid in the writing of The Nightfly, for example, in New mm-hmm. Frontier, that I think must be a direct result of having felt that isolation. That's Yeah, isolation. Well, that was, that really had a lot to do uh, to this very sterile environment that uh, we moved into. And uh, it sort of, uh, you know, wished to escape is all, all through that record, you know. So if nothing else, it was worth it for a couple of good tunes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it was really worth it, but uh, yeah, I did get some good good stuff out of it, yeah. Yeah, who knows what you would have gotten out of uh, a happier uh, pre Yeah, that's true. Life. I read that you went to the Newport Jazz Festival when you were 11 years old. Yeah, my older cousins were jazz fans, and they, uh, my cousin Jack and Mike, and they took me, uh, we actually hitched there from New Jersey to Newport, and uh, I remember seeing, uh, you know, a couple of shows, so Howard McGee and uh, a few other things. It was a, it was a little disappointing because it was drizzly that, <laughs> you know, those days, and we ended up, we were, had sleeping bags and slept on the beach, and it was kind of uh, grotty, you know, but uh, but it was still fun for me, you know, because I was a kid, and, and I was, you know, deeply into into jazz at that point. You were already into jazz at that point? Yeah, from about 10, I think, or 11, uh, I started really getting into it. Um, What'd you dig? Well, uh, I think those same cousins, uh, and also I had this cousin Barbara. 
she was really good looking. She was maybe 18 around this time, and, and she was a big jazz fan and used to go to the village all the time. You know, she used to date beatniks. And she also went out with Miles Davis briefly and knew Thelonious Monk quite well. What was her last name? Her last name was uh, Barbara Cohn. Uh-huh. She was a great dancer, I remember. And she had this record collection in the basement, you know, of uh, really good stuff. I remember, you know, the record with Thelonious Monk and Johnny Griffin, a live record, and uh, oh, all kinds of great stuff. We used to have this family sort of uh, celebration every year, and, and uh, we spent most of it in the basement with Barbara listening to these records. And so when I... Huh. I started listening to these uh, radio shows that, that you could uh, receive from Manhattan. Symphony Sid and uh, Mort Figa and people like that. And I, was, I put the radio under the covers. And and I, I was into, um, well, first I, I think uh, because my cousins liked it, I was into like Brubeck, mm-hmm. mostly because of Paul Desmond. I said Brubeck was... Well-intentioned, but uh, very stiff. The hipster's lament is to always make it clear that I dig Brubeck, but really it's Paul Desmond. Yeah, I mean, he was a uh, Brubeck was a great writer. I yeah. think he wrote some great, great jazz tunes, which are standards now. But uh, his plan, he, his solos usually used they used to start out good, but then something would happen where he'd start just like banging, mm-hmm. and and he his time would go and. <laughs> it was really a relief when Paul Desmond mm-hmm. would, would start to play. But then uh, after listening to the radio and getting more of a sense of what was out there, I kind of centered in on on Miles Davis' first first quintet. And, mm-hmm. You know, and I used to try to, you know, imitate Red Garland. Mm-hmm. And I love Coltrane, although it, it scared me when I... It was actually scary sounding, <laughs> like on those uh, prestige records... He sounded, you know, kind of uh, angry, or and I'm, I'm sure he was to a certain degree. But it was his his searching quality. Uh, I actually liked those better than when he developed uh, into a different kind of player. He was basically a hard bop player, but you could hear him trying to find other notes that no one used. You know. I wonder also about the context. I mean, if he was the sort of wild card in the context of that quintet, mm-hmm. it still seemed like it was in the it contained in the same sort of the same package. Of, of yeah, a, it was perfect because yeah. Miles played great solos too, but yeah. it was more his his note choice was more conventional. He was, I think, glad to stop playing so fast, like he used to have to with Charlie Parker. That's right. right. And so he developed this very melodic style. His time was perfect, man. Yeah. He had such a groove, uh, Miles. But then uh, when Coltrane would come on and he'd play, you know, all these notes, it was like, uh, it was a great, uh, Miles was a great foil for, for Coltrane, you know. And then Red Garland had this kind of style that, uh, you know, people used to make fun of him because it sounded like a cocktail pianist. But to me, it was just, he had a light touch, but he was a really good improviser and he, he had amazing technique. I mean, he had a warmth to his playing and a groove that no other piano player ever achieved, I think. So he was your guy? Yeah, for sure. And Philly Joe Jones. Yeah, and... sure. Hearing you describe, first of all, being kind of turned on to jazz, in part because you had this hip, beautiful cousin. Right. And mm-hmm. wanting to kind of be around her, it sounds like. Yeah, she was great. You know, she was funny. I, I can't help but wonder if the sort of image of Cousin Dupree comes from having been attracted to an older cousin. Oh, that's an, I never thought of that, but it's an interesting uh, idea. But then also the radio and like, you know, not being 
in New York and wanting to be in an urban center and listening to the radio, what that must have represented to you under the covers. Like there's some hip shit happening. Yeah, totally. You know, and I remember also I used to listen to Gene Shepard, who was a uh, monologist. Uh, he used to just he was the greatest talker of all time, and he used to tell stories. It was on 11.15 to midnight when I was listening to him. My Uncle Dave actually put me on. He was kind of a hipster, too. And he put me on to listen to, to Shepard. Shepard used to uh, he used to call his listeners the gang. He said, hey, gang, you know, send me those uh, articles. If you see something that's really, like, out there in the newspaper or whatever, send it in. And, uh, you know, if I, it's interesting to me, I'll read it. So... He called them straws in the wind, mm -hmm. that being they were things that, you know, enabled you to be prescient about what was going to happen in the future. <laughs> so I once found this article in a local paper. It was uh, some guy in the middle of the night went down to the uh, new shopping center and threw Coke bottles through all the windows, hmm. you know, and broke every window in the shopping center. So I sent it in to, to Shepard, and he actually read it on the air, right? He says, ah, this kid sent me this... Uh, and I, it was so exciting, you know, that I, I remember going down to my parents who were watching Bonanza or something uh, on TV, and I said, wow, Shepard just... And they, they didn't get it. It was like, <laughs> oh, that's nice, you know? Mm -hmm. like, <laughs> but uh, to me, it was it was great, because I had some... Connected with some, like, some hip guy, you know? <laughs> right, it was a sign that you could be one of these guys. Yeah, right? well, at least, yeah, at least have some connection with a bigger world beyond the one I was in. What did your parents make of your decision to be a musician? Well, my mother, you know, was a singer. Um, yeah. She was a child singer. Um, she was kind of like uh, Shirley Temple, only mm -hmm. she only played it in the Catskills. At a, it was this hotel called The Ideal. And uh, her mother knew the guy who owned this hotel, which later, later expanded into being the Concord Hotel. Mm -hmm. But uh, the guy loved my mother's singing. And so every year from uh, every summer from when she was five to about 15, she'd go up there and sing for tips with a trio, you know. And so, uh, you know, my especially my mother, she loved music, so she was not that upset about it. You know, my father was like, my father was great. He was, he was sort of uh, not that controlling or anything like that. Um, I don't think he got it really, but... Uh, and he was especially happy when we started making money. And uh, he used to wear a Steely Dan hat and talk to fans when they went on vacation and all that. So they they uh, they were they were pretty happy about it. So your parents they appreciated it when you started making money, especially your father. What about you? What did did you expect to make money? Was that an expectation? Was that a hope? Was that a an ambition? Well, I just just I uh, think I wanted to make a living doing music because it was the only thing we were interested in. And then. We also, at the same time, I think we're, we're fairly arrogant. And we thought that if we really worked at it, some people had to like it, what we were doing. You know, um, that may have been just, you know, arrogance on our part. <clears throat> and yet it uh, worked out. You, know? you think it was simply arrogance? Because in a way, it is a kind of an unlikely success story. Yeah. To be putting that much jazz, that much sophistication. There's so many quirks about the way you wrote. I guess, you know, at the time, the FM radio was still happening where you could actually, you know, there was a lot of weird stuff on the radio. You could, uh, you know, there was like, you could still have a hit with a movie instrumental or, you know, there was some weird instrumental stuff uh, that could still be hits. And uh, 
uh, that closed up pretty quickly. But at the time, uh, because of that, we felt that because we were we knew we were doing something different, and that we we knew more chords than, <laughs> than most of the other guys. <laughs> that it was diff- going to be different sounding, so we felt we had a chance, you know, because of the formats at that time. So in the sense, the fact that you were so different maybe gave you an edge. You were thinking, yeah, for sure, yeah. Because, you know, I don't think my voice is that great or anything like that. It's, you know, okay. But uh, I think, it, you know, we were we were really into arranging. You know, it's like uh, we both like big bands as well as small groups. You know, we were both Duke Ellington fans particularly. Uh, I used to force my uh, my parents to take me to uh, go to Lambertville or one of these places and see Stan Kent. I saw Stan Kenton. When he had his Melophonium mm-hmm. band, I saw Maynard Ferguson at the top of his game, mm-hmm. uh, and I saw Ellington. I saw Count Basie. The big band model was actually it really informing the way. Yeah, you thought the about section it. work and yeah. how they developed a uh, piece. Yeah. You know, you know, which was sort of almost like a classical model where you know they started with the theme and then they'd have these episodes. They changed key. I mean, if you listen to those records now. The best of them really sound good. They're they're uh, they'd always have an introduction that someone put some thought to. Mm-hmm. Then they'd have uh, they'd play the tune instrumentally, and then then uh, they'd change key usually, mm-hmm. and then you'd hear this vocalist come in near the end of the tune for the <laughs> first time and sing the song, mm-hmm. and then they'd wrap it up. You know, yeah. or a really cool uh, format. You know, I get the sense that it was the literature that. Im- influenced your lyrics were there songwriters or lyricists that were also influential to you or meaningful to you when you started writing songs well uh, walter and i were both familiar with standards me especially through my mother who used to sing them at home all the time so i i wasn't the kind of player who could uh play a party and and take requests so much but i knew a fair amount of standards and uh you know i really liked uh gershwin and uh I loved Harry Warren, who was very, he wrote these very simple songs, but they were like perfect. Hmm. Burton Lane and Harold Arlen, you know. And then uh, both Walter and I had really got into the Motown people who were writing those tunes. And also like, uh, well, Burt Bachrock. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't sound, you know, in context now it might not, it may just sound like easy listening music. But at the time uh, he was doing, you know, doing these kind of Frenchified chord progressions that no one else would do and and then adding these uh soul sisters you know sing sing it it just was perfect and um we both like frank zappa mm-hmm. who's chaotic but very clever and uh and then uh laura nero mm-hmm. who also was doing uh you know, brought in some sort of Bartok like uh, harmony stuff like that, mm-hmm. and if you you know put that together with Helen Wolf and Mighty Waters, it ends up sounding a little bit like us. You know, I mean, I hear you saying again and again that uh, you knew that there was something unique about it. Yeah, and as we started out talking about the band that you found now, you know, you mentioned that they were many of them influenced by by mm-hmm. the band. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you make of the influence today of Steely Dan? That I don't really know, because I, I haven't been listening to a lot of newer bands, and it always seems to me that, that I would hear uh, more of an influence on uh, TV jingles, like in the 80s and 90s. Like, well, <laughs> There probably... were some things that sounded a lot like us, you know, because uh, the arrangers dug it. 
Yeah, they were uh, probably calling a lot of the same people. Yeah, so, you know, you'd hear, uh, I don't know, commercial for some car or something, and I'd go, hey, didn't they just rip something from the middle of so-and-so, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And as far as bands who were influenced, uh, there, there's a few of them, obviously, and I have to say, I've never really heard one that I could say, oh, that's a direct sort of link or... I wonder if more than a specific link of a band or a writer that is lifting from you, it's more like a set of values, you know? Well, maybe an attitude. Yeah. I mean, in a way, not not musically so much, but just in, in our attitude. And what we were doing was a, some weird version of punk huh? in a certain way because it was uh, because of the, you know, satirical kind of... Uh, element in punk of you know just kind of ripping everything apart and I mean it was funny just because it was so awful uh, in a lot of cases it made it funny and uh, you know although we were always reluctant to uh, we you know we were just controlled I mean but that's why I, th I think it's surprising yeah. to hear you say punk because the association is much more yeah but I think control. it is sort of a, the objective was similar in a funny yeah. way yeah <laughs> Because I think a lot of times when people talk about, especially the sort of the later gaucho Asia, there's a real sense of studio control and looking for something. I mean, it was before drum machines, right. but you guys were looking to be like really tight, real tight. Yeah, we wanted to be tight. You know, we just wanted the tightness of any uh, black R&B group or Ray Charles record. Or It was not that weird. It was yeah. just in the jazz world or the... Uh, James Brown or whatever, yeah. the standard of uh, huh. tightness and groove and consistency was just, that's what it was. You know, yes. if, you, if you had bad time, you were fired. Yes. If you had, uh, if you couldn't play your part, you were fired, you know. So so we like to use guys who we wouldn't have to say much to them. They would just be able to do it, you know. Yes. I like dance grooves, you know. I don't really dance, but I, I love it, you know. Dance grooves they have now, I don't get it all. Some hip-hop stuff, like especially in the 80s and 90s, that managed to manufacture extremely nice grooves, uh, although I don't hear that so much anymore. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we were among the first to start experimenting with drum machines and sequencers. Yeah, was there not a sequencer built for your first solo record? Uh, it was actually built for Gaucho, the last Steely uh -huh. Dan album in the 70s. Yeah. Um, but Roger Nichols developed it more by the time I made... Uh, the Nightfly yeah. record. So, you know, after a while, I, I became impatient with it because uh, you would spend no, so much time trying to master the technology that it didn't leave you time to write songs. And it was like just, which is, I think, the state that we're in now. You know, people just mess around with the technology and kind of paste the song on top of it, you know. But what what we were interested in was getting great grooves that we couldn't achieve with the band uh, sometimes. It was really out of desperation. <laughs> like this Wendell machine, uh, Roger Nichols, we I used to call it the desperation machine. That's when we would use it, you know. When we save me, help me. Yeah. There's a story that I heard, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, about a night spent in the studio with some digital delay box trying to move a snare drum or a hi-hat x number of milliseconds one direction or the other direction yeah no when, yeah when we you know what it was is the the that was sort of when i was trying to write at home i had a bunch of digital delays for, i had a delay on every track and i used to experiment with you know moving stuff and and i i got pretty good at it and 
uh, when we're recording like uh, Nightfly and uh, later on doing like, uh, well, Comic Heriad and also uh, Two Against mm-hmm. Nature, I, 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 by then I was able to, I could tell the difference, you know, between moving things a tenth of a millisecond. Mm. And I'm sorry I'd have to admit that because um, it was, you know, it was really monotonous <clears throat> work and uh, soul killing to a certain extent. But if you'd hit that spot moving things around, all of a sudden it was like magic when it would pop into like sounding like an actual drummer who was perfect. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Do, have you heard this groove? There's this new groove where the hi-hat is pushed against the kick and the snare, and it's like a D'Angelo hip-hop related, but there are mm. jazz musicians, Robert Glasper, a piano player, are associated with it. And it's a groove that I find to be a real generational divide between whether or not people can feel it and dig it or not. Well, you know, I think stuff that used to sound just wrong yeah. is now desirable. Uh, you know, here, I mean, you hear things that are sound totally crippled yeah. that people, you know, make build a record around that to me is it's funny but you know it's a one joke thing for me it's like if you're eight bars of it you know now now can you play good you yeah. know <laughs> <laughs> right i have the same problem with a lot of uh novel like uh humor novels in that sense and and tv shows and things where the uh attitude is so arch that it becomes boring you know or there's a lot of a lot of films like comedy films that mm-hmm. you know they're just based around this one joke you know one idea that's supposed to be funny but you know it's just like you just see it and 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 that's that's something i didn't want to get into with, with steely dan and mm-hmm. walter didn't either it was this kind of i think i was a problem with frank zappa yes to a certain extent especially as he got older is uh <clears throat> he just had these one joke ideas and fill up the rest of the song with music and lyrics that was basically just repeating the same joke and you know, I never was into that. Really. But again, it, it it feels like maybe it's the context. I mean, it's radical to be satirical in an unexpected context. You know, like you're still writing tunes that fe- they're so grooved and they feel so good. Yeah, we always wanted to, to have the music and uh, you know, we're gonna make you know fun records. But uh, I think you know, just because we were both big readers, we were we were always interested in subtly satirizing something or just doing it in one line in yes. a song that would change the whole thing or and especially taking a certain kind of lyric and putting it against music that was totally you know seemed to to be lie what the lyrics were saying although yeah and, and that was almost in a sort of brechtian yes kind of way you know well it's subversive i mean i th- i can't help but think about that the audience that i saw out to hear you play last mm-hmm. j- june in madison you know and i'm i'm from madison i i have nothing right. to just negative to say about my hometown but these are some old school rockers who went out to you know have a good party and and mm-hmm. check out a Steely Dan concert. And there's something quite subversive about the uh, amount of hipness in the lyrics and in the music. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's no way for us to control how people receive what we're doing. But you know, I think uh, there is that kind of Brechtian yes thing happening where you know you can have a very sweet music that was is basically masking some horrible thought you know? <laughs> <laughs> and you feel like that's you, you got some of that over yeah i mean you know that's why like for instance there's a lot of people who are not fans and they, they object mm. to it i think because they just hear the surface of it and like something to them it sounds like music or 
sometimes or just soft rock or easy listening rock or something. And uh, they, they associate rebelliousness with just this kind of loud hard rock stuff or heavy metal or whatever. And to me, that's that's a very adolescent way of being rebellious. You know, it's it's uh, it's kind of dumb, you know. And we we always, you know, wanted to have a lot of nuance in the thing, you know. I will forever remember you telling me today that you feel that you have more in common with punk. More in common with them than with, uh, you know, sort of California singer-songwriter type uh, stuff, confessional Stuff, which some of which I love, you know, like James Taylor sure. or uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, or whatever. I love those records, but uh, it's not what we do. Well, you get kind of lumped in today in a world that is sometimes referred to as yacht rock. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think that's kind of what you're yeah, describing. I think that's funny. I, in fact, we once invited the yacht rock guy who invented yacht rock to a show. Yeah. And uh, I think Mike McDonald was along on that show and and when we came out we had we got these yachting caps that we all wore and the guy was just freaked out, freaked out that we actually like had a sense of humor about mm-hmm. ourselves really you know? yeah right it was very funny do you know about this whole subset of steely dan cover bands around the world i know there's many of them uh i don't i don't think i've ever heard one um but i i know there's a lot of them and what do you make of that well it's very flattering i think they certainly if people are doing it pretty well they they have to have a certain amount of musical education and chops and everything so they must be pretty good you know yeah i know i i wouldn't be interested in doing that if some other group i mean for instance uh a few years ago i was gonna I had some rehearsals with some of the guys in our band and the idea was to take early rolling stone stuff and do it as sort of uh ramsey lewis or ray bryant type trio stuff or quintet or whatever and that that was interesting to me because uh, you know you were taking something and then changing the whole cast of it you know but i wouldn't like to try to uh, simulate something that's already been done that's boring on the other hand you do like playing some of your favorite old tunes with the rock and soul review yeah and sure the, yeah you know that's something that you've played around with for years yeah although usually you know even with those i t- tend to change the arrangements yeah and kind of try to expand them a little bit. Uh, but I, I love that old stuff. So, you know, I mean, I grew up with early soul and uh, R&B and uh, well, Beach Boys or whatever. So they're, they're really fun to play. I wouldn't like to do it all the time. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's fun to uh, to go out and do that because the audience all knows all the songs. It's like a little party. So that's it's kind of a break, you know. Is that part of what got you out of the stage fright or anxiety about performing doing those, those yeah to gigs. an extent i walter and i you know took a break starting in 79 or 80 he was having a lot of drug problems and uh, personal problems and so on and so um we decided to take a break and and um eventually i met uh, libby titus who was doing these shows in restaurants she would produce these really funny, really entertaining shows that had some comedy and music. And uh, and we both came up with the idea of this kind of rock and soul review idea, which um, actually started with we were going to do one songwriter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the first one we did was, was uh, Burt Burns and Jerry Ragavoy uh, mm-hmm. tunes, which we did. And uh, it was tremendous fun. And we would do it at the Lone Star 
when it was on 52nd Street. And we'd get people to come down because they all loved those tunes. So, uh, you know, we'd do like Cry Baby and Stay With Me and all these old Jerry Ragavard, A Piece of My Heart. And so we would get Cindy Lauper to come down mm. and uh, Chaka Khan. And mm. once we did a jazz night with Annie Ross. Mm. And uh, we had all this, a lot of fun doing that stuff. And then we had an opportunity to take it on the road. And so we got, uh, I called Mike McDonald and uh, Bob Skaggs and Chuck Jackson, Phoebe Snow, and, and took it on the road, and it was really fun. That's how Walter got back. Uh, the second year we did that, he was in town, and uh, he sat in a few times, and we did a Steely Dan song, and everyone was <laughs> freaking out. So we'd say, hey, why don't we uh, try getting a new band together? So, so in a sense, that was. That's what, that's what brought, brought the whole thing around. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, Libby had a lot to do with it. Because at first we didn't want to do Steely Dance songs. We were just going to do these old, <laughs> you know, creaky soul. <laughs> but uh, she said, no, you're not, you, you, you can't do that. You have to play Steely Dance. The audience will kill you. They'll rush the stage and kill you. So she got us back into it. And of course, it's true that those are the ones they like the most, you know. Yeah. Did do you think your writing as Steely Dan changed after going through that process? Maybe, maybe to a little extent, but... Uh, Actually, I thought we became, it was funny, I think some of the stuff became more harmonically rich mm-hmm. when we did our last couple albums. Like, uh, like, I'm always studying music, so, you know, I would study some composer for a while and then somebody else. And and so uh, I would say, wow, I like, this is a great idea if you use this kind of chord. And, well, harmonically, I think it became more interesting. So who are you studying? Yeah. In college, I we studied... Uh, classical stuff but yeah. also like Stravinsky and uh is my favorite probably yeah. he, his music is it's really cut and paste music he he wasn't really that interested in development except in a subtle way and his music reminds me of funk music to a large degree because the, <clears throat> what he called cells there would be like a four bar seven bar or eight bar cell where he would just repeat the same thing over and over, perhaps with some uh, slight changes. And then he'd just say, I'm done with that. Here's a completely different thing. And that's how he wrote music. You know, it's, it's like, uh, which reminds me a lot of, uh, you know, Funkadelics or mm-hmm. Parliament or something. It seems like over and over again, a kind of a critical and analytical approach to the stuff that you're into is like really a big part of what's happening in your life. I mean, a lot of your writing has been actually essentially cultural analysis or cultural criticism. Yeah, I guess. You have a, you know... I used to read a lot of critics. You know, I used to like uh, Irving Howe, and uh, I used to read a lot of Norman Mailer. Mm -hmm. It's kind of uh, New York intellectual stuff, you know. And uh, then I, uh, in the 80s, I even got into some, like, uh, deconstructionist, like Roland Barthes and stuff Uh like that. And uh, But I was struck, like, in Eminent Hipsters by how much of what is ostensibly a memoir, was basically your view of the stuff that was important to you. It was like a collection of stuff. I had written some, some of that stuff for magazines, uh, and I kind of expanded it for the book, except for the for the tour yeah. diary, <laughs> which I, I would just, every night when I was on tour, I'd just write what happened that day. But that's know? why I started out by asking you what it means to you to tour today, because, you know, you were a little cranky at, at the end of the book. Yeah, play. that's true. Yeah, I'm always a little cranky, but... Uh, uh, you know, it depends. 
Oh my God, there it was, a conversation with Donald Fagan. Can you believe it? Can you hardly stand it? Oi, we did it. We did it, y'all. We got in there. We talked about it. Thank you, Donald, for your generosity and uh, candor during our conversation. Thank you to the boys at Storefront Music for providing a clean and well-lighted space for us to get together, get down, and get with it, (laughs) as my friend the late Clyde Stubblefield used to say. Well, that's it for today. I'll be back again very shortly with another one of these deep dives, and i got to tell you that we got some good stuff coming. Stay tuned. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.